Good morning. This is 42 Minutes, a production of ThinkBook Radio and thethinkbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day, a show that's willing to explore the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything for a community utilizing synchronicity as an interactive paradigm to playfully interface with the universe. Today is February 26, 2013, and I am Douglas Bowles. This is episode number 73, and this morning we will consider the occult and what it has done to mold America. Hello, I'm William Morgan, and today on 42 Minutes, we're speaking with Mitch Horowitz, uh, Vice President and Editor-in-Chief at, at Thatcher Penguin, publisher of works of philosophy, social thought, metaphysics, and world religion. You know, all the good stuff. More information about his work can be found at his webs- or website, MitchHorowitz.com. Mitch is the author of 2009... Um, the 2009 book, Occult America, The Secret History of How Mysticism Shaped Our Nation, which re- received a 2010, is it Penn or P-E-N, Oakland, Josephine? Penn, Penn, Oakland. Penn, Oakland. Um, award for Literary Excellence. Good morning, sir. How are you? Great. Good to be here. Wonderful. Wonderful. You, you begin your book, uh, Occult America, after you get your mystical pilgrims to make landfall with kind of a personal synchronicity. And I noticed this is, this is pretty common for the author to kind of create a doorway into the world, you know, to show this little coincidence how you stumbled into the world. But, you know, in our world, we call that a thing. Yeah. yeah. What do you make of that? And what are your thoughts on synchronicity? Well, I, I believe that the things we come into contact with when we're kids, have a greater importance in our lives than we really understand. We all pay lip service to the fact that early childhood influences are significant. But I think that children, when they're, I don't know, probably in their early formative years before age nine or so, which is the point at which pure conformity starts to settle in, um, the influences and the activities that children are attracted to are very portentous. For me, uh, it was the occult and the supernatural. At a very young age, I was interested in astrology, and you know, shortly before we, we began the show, we were talking about the soap opera Dark Shadows, one of the original uh, gothic vampire television shows. Yeah. Um, it seems like it's from another world, really. Uh, I was interested in all the robed gurus that would appear on talk shows like Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas was fascinated by... Uh, everything from the Twilight Zone to accounts of Bigfoot and UFOs. And I had this unflagging feeling that there was some kernel of truth in all this. There was some other world that existed outside the boundaries of day-to-day life. And I was very blessed because as a grown-up, I came into my work as a publisher of New Age and metaphysical literature and a historian of alternative spirituality. Uh, basically when I was in my 30s, and it's a blessing to be able to revisit material as an adult that excited and aroused you as a kid. Uh, I always tell people, pay very, very careful attention to what it was that turned you on when you were six, seven, eight, nine years old, when you had enough of an intellect to be engaged with the world, but also weren't yet caught up in the currents of conformity and peer pressure, as happens in the years 
preceding adolescence. So whatever you're into, whether it was cooking or whether it was guns or whether it was ballet or whether it was drama um, or whether it was horseback riding, pay attention to that. There's something magical in that. And if you can rediscover those interests as an adult, uh, you can count yourself blessed. You mentioned... Well, let's go this way, too. So one of the, the things that's interesting about this world is, have you suffered any psychic trauma because it's not mainstream? So mm. to be into well, something is exciting, yeah, but at yeah. the same time, you know, this is a world populated by nutballs and strangeness. <laughs> and There's a lot of strangeness <laughs> in the culture of the New Age and, and the occult. That's a great question. I'll answer it from two perspectives. I'll, I'll start with the second part of your premise, which is right. The New Age culture, of which I'm very much a part, is populated with a lot of eccentric personalities. Um, but what I've told friends and what I've told myself many years ago is that innovations very often come from the fringes. Um, today, uh, macrobiotic foods, meditation, yoga, um, acupuncture, all of these things are very much part of mainstream life. But when they first started to emerge on the American scene in the early 20th century, they were very unusual. They came from fringe cultures. And you can discover, if you're careful and if you approach these cultures with discretion, you can discover a lot of wonderful things that exist outside the mainstream, but you also have to come to terms with the fact that you're going to meet a lot of eccentric personalities as well, and you have to put up with that. The New Age has its own culture. Every religious movement, every subculture in America has its own kind of personality. And on the New Age, you know, you, you'll find people who, let's say, have a lack of accountability or who um, take being... Uh, laid back mm. to the point where it sort of um, excuses them from living up to normal standards and mores of behavior, what have you. you know. Um, but you're going to find these quirks in any religious culture. You go to the evangelical right, you're going to find a whole other host of things and hypocrisies and such. Mm. So you have to make peace uh, to some extent um, with eccentric uh, traits and quirks and personalities if you're going to try to find some of the diamonds in the rough that exist uh, off the margins of mainstream life. And the other part of your question is, um, have I suffered uh, any, um, I don't know if you said psychic disabilities or uh, <laughs> any, any personal problems, you know, having made such an investment in this material? That's a really interesting question. I would say no, but I think about it all the time because the fact is, I do a lot within mainstream media, and I've often told people that one of the fees of admission to mainstream media when you're interested in the occult and the esoteric is disavowal. You know, you're always expected to say, I don't actually believe any of this stuff. It's interesting, and it's had lots of influences, and um, it, 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 it's entertaining history, but, but I don't take any of it seriously. Now, I don't take that approach. I consider myself more of a believing historian, and I, I try to be upfront about that with people. Um, some of the greatest works of religious history of our time have been produced by believing historians, members of a particular church, who also write critically uh, and, and with great discretion about events and the development of people and personalities within their church. I think of, for example, the historian Richard Lyman Bushman, who is a, a member of the Mormon Church, who's written one of the finest biographies of Joseph Smith. I think of uh, the historian Robert Peel from the Christian Science Church, who wrote just a magisterial three-part biography of Mary Baker Eddy. These men were impeccable scholars, but they were also believing scholars. And I, I count myself in that category. Um, 
I thought I was being self-disclosing in occult America about the fact that I was a believing historian, but um, maybe I wasn't as self-disclosing as I thought because lots of people would ask me, where do you come down on this? You know, do you believe this stuff? And I was surprised at the number of times I was asked that because I, I thought I had been fairly straightforward. I just uh, completed the manuscript for a new book, which is coming out in early 2014, called One Simple Idea, and it's a history of the positive thinking movement. And in that book, I would say I'm probably more self-disclosing. In the introduction to that book, I'm very upfront and, and straightforward about the fact that I am a critical uh, practitioner of a variety of the positive thinking philosophies, and I, I don't think they deserve the um, bad intellectual reputation that they've developed uh, over the decades. And so um, I, I haven't suffered from, from being associated with these ideas, but I'm always cognizant of the fact that it's very tough to talk about them in the mainstream, but I'd be misleading people if I wasn't upfront that, that I'm a, a believing historian. So what do you think about the idea of individuals uh, pinpointing occult symbolism and stuff like that in today's mainstream? Well, you know, there is a wealth of occult symbolism in today's mainstream. These, these symbols are alluring and they're beautiful, I think. The eye in the pyramid on the back of our dollar bill is a perfect example. That's not an image directly out of Freemasonry, but it certainly was inspired by Freemasonry. Um, an image like the pentagram, um, which has, has been with us for many centuries, still has its power to sort of um, repel or attract people. It's a very powerful symbol. Now, the vast majority of times when these symbols are being used in mainstream life, they're being used more as uh, an artistic statement or a kind of decoration. Uh, I'm asked all the time, I seem to get interviewed once every six weeks for an article about whether uh, Jay-Z or Beyonce or Kanye West are members of the Illuminati. Oh yeah, um, we get that all course, the time. You know, <laughs> It's complete fantasy. You know, what they are are brilliant artists, and they understand how magnetic these symbols really are. At the same time, there is sometimes the appearance of these symbols do have meaning, not a dark or sinister or conspiratorial meaning, but they, they speak to the influence of occult movements on American life. For example, I mentioned earlier the eye in the pyramid on the back of the dollar bill. That actually didn't go on the back of our dollar bill until 1935. Right. It was placed there by Franklin Roosevelt and his um, future Vice President Henry Wallace, both of whom were Freemasons, both of whom had a love for portentous imagery, and they seemed to um, have a grasp of what the Founding Fathers were driving at when they selected that symbol um, at the founding of the country as, as part of the Great Seal of the United States. Many of the Founders uh, were openly uh, members of Freemasonry, and they were inspired by the Freemasonic principle that great civilizations were part of a kind of a chain and had a a, a, a shared principle, a shared stake in the search for spiritual truth without being tied or attached to any one particular religion or congregation. This idea of a universal spiritual search was a central part of Freemasonry, and some of the founders embraced this idea and saw the creation of the American Republic as a footstep in that tradition. They saw the American Republic as part of a chain of great civilizations extending back to ancient Egypt, and they were very comfortable with the kinds of esoteric and occult imagery that symbolized this universal spirituality. And they found that imagery within Freemasonry. There weren't many other places to find it. Uh, that Masonry was the vessel in modern life that preserved that imagery. So w when you see that iron pyramid image on the back of our dial bill, there's a real historical lineage there of, of a set of ideas and principles and values 
uh, that's very authentic. It's not just a mere decoration, but nor is it a symbol of some sort of sinister or hidden order. And getting into the real truth of these things, to me, is, 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 is where the thrill of history really is. Along those lines, I'm sure you're aware of this kind of upsurge of uh, kind of occult conspiracy. Um, it's almost, it's, yep. it's, yeah, and you, you mention it, um, like presage it a little bit in the book with uh, the, I think it's the, the Kennedy assassination. And so you have yeah, yeah. Capote on the Tonight Show talking about Blavatsky, right? And yeah. he's, he's creating this conspiracy theory yep. and, and creating a narrative that you disavow but is really interesting. And then for people who are marginally educated, they can latch on to various elements and create this whole almost religious superstructure where instead of a god, that mm-hmm. all-powerful God, we have an all-powerful conspiracy yeah. that, like, with the ruling elites. Yeah. They become sky what, gods who control the weather and manipulate everything we see. Yeah. Uh, those are very good points. You know, I'll, I'll say a couple of things about that. I mean, what you're referencing is there's an episode in the book that I write about where uh, the writer Truman Capote was on uh, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show in the late 1960s, and he concocted this theory uh, that Sirhan Sirhan, the man who uh, assassinated um, uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, was a member of a kind of a cult conspiracy that had its roots in the work of Madame H.P. Blavatsky, the founder of the Theosophical Society, who who began the Theosophical Society here in the United States in the um, late uh, 1870s. And Capote spun this complete fantasy that within Blavatsky's writings was this idea that you could destabilize a society by assassinating key political figures and that you could replace it with some kind of new world order and that that was uh, the backstory behind the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. This was complete fantasy, but it was very alluring, and uh, it was coming from the mouth of an author who, at the time, it's difficult to remember this, but Truman Capote in the late 1960s was considered an expert criminologist. His reputation had been made on the book In Cold Blood, and he was considered a crime expert. He's a wonderfully articulate man, a brilliant man, had never read a word of Blavatsky's work. And this was complete fantasy. People gobbled it up. And part of the reason people gobbled it up um, uh, speaks to the other part of your, your question, which is the, the, the popularity of conspiracy theories, particularly occult-tinged conspiracy theories today. Um, these things are titillating to people. Uh, rather than look out on the world and see all kinds of accidents and suffering, and rather than look upon the inconsistencies of one's own existence, rather than look upon what I'm like to live with, what I'm like to work with, what I'm like to be around. It's vastly easier, and it feels much better, vastly more exciting, to imagine uh, that there are some kind of uh, secret societies, conspiracies, uh, new world order, uh, backstories going on in American life, and to seize upon uh, symbols and images where these things seem to show up, and it, it becomes kind of this self-referencing repeat loop world where if you look for something, you could find it. If I tell you the number 72 is a portentous number, you can find 72 steps on an important building. If I tell you the number 14 is a portentous number, you can link that 
to the Federal Reserve or what have you. There's so much information floating around in the world, it's possible, depending upon what your standards are, to validate almost anything. And I'm deeply concerned uh, by the embrace of conspiracy theories uh, within occult and New Age subcultures. I think that conspiracy theories not only have nothing to do with the search for self-awareness, um, but they're a, a flight from it. They're a fleeing from it. Um, the notion of looking at the world as a, a complex and tragic place beset with accidents, the notion of looking at our political structures as places that suffer from a want of accountability or responsibility, the notion of looking at ourselves as actors who play into the problems and the hypocrisies of the world is completely boring to people <laughs> who engage in conspiracy theories, which are much more exciting because yeah. the, the, the witness of the conspiracy theorist and the listener of the conspiracy theorist always sees himself as a kind of virtuous witness. Uh, this bold, clear-thinking, clear-sighted figure uh, who understands something about the world. So it's much more self-flattering. Uh, it's titillating. It's interesting. Um, but it, 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 it represents ultimately an opposite of what a cult and esoteric spirituality is supposed to be, which is a search for the self. It's, it's a flight from that search, in a sense. And it, conspiracy theories very often reinforce a kind of us versus them mentality, a paranoid mentality. They shut down questions. Um, one hallmark that you'll always find in conspiracy theorists is certainty. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson, who people sometimes identify as a conspiracy theorist of sorts, but who didn't Pope Bob. Well, any part of that label. Yeah, a very He's holy man problem. here on this show. <laughs> oh, well, that's wonderful. Then we're, we're living in the same neighborhood. Um, he gave an interview years ago where he said the problem with most conspiracy theorists is that they've never heard the word maybe. You know? And that, that, that tone and attitude of certainty is the hallmark of, of conspiracy theorizing. It shuts down questions, which to me is the point of, of, of all inner search. So um, I am... Uh, I'm sorry to see the, 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 the headway that conspiracy theorizing has made within the New Age and occult subcultures, and I, I think it's a, um, it's a sort of topsy-turvy outcome of, of where these subcultures are supposed to take us. And so with that, I suppose we, should just, we can open up the, you know, the entire thrust of your book, which I found fascinating. So you, you historically look at mysticism and the occult in our country, but what you end up doing is telling a radical story about democracy and liberalism and progressive politics because the people who were the occultists often spearheaded the things that you know we think make our country great. Yes, it's remarkable and it's an unwritten part of our history to a great extent that the people who were engaged in movements like spiritualism, for example, which was a movement that involved organizing into seance circles and talking to the dead, were very often the same people who seeded early movements in abolitionism and um, universal suffrage and other radical reformist movements. Spiritualism began in this country, roughly speaking, in the late 1840s. There was a couple of teenage girls in upstate New York, the Fox Sisters, who claimed that the spirit raps that were being heard throughout their parents' log cabin were messages from the afterworld. And this movement uh, just swelled with enormous popularity um, in, in a remarkably short period of time to the extent that by the early 1850s, you had Americans everywhere, organizing themselves into seance circles, attempting to communicate with the dead. Um, 
I crunched the numbers, and it was really likely that it was about 10% of American adults wow. were participating in this supernatural movement. And there were many reasons for it. But one of the reasons that's been overlooked is that most spirit mediums were women. Uh, the role of trans medium was the first opportunity for women to claim a kind of religious or social leadership in this country. And that's no exaggeration. Uh, a woman in the mid-19th century could be a housewife, could be maybe a schoolmistress, uh, could be maybe an actress, and that was about it. You know, there were no other opportunities for a woman to function publicly. Spiritualism comes along, and suddenly people are looking to women as the head of seance circles. Huh. They're forming magazines, newspapers, newsletters, meetings, discussion societies, and women are at the center of it. So, remarkably enough, history is always told in geography. The same region of upstate New York that produced spiritualism produced the first uh, conference on women's rights in Seneca Falls, New York, and in the same year, 1848. This stuff happened down the road from each other. The, 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 the Fox sisters lived outside of Rochester. About 40 miles down the road was the first um, women's rights conference in the same year. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't happenstance. These movements all fed one another. And the, the, the same was true, for example, for the mental healing movement, which eventually became the positive thinking movement. People who had reformist and radical values, one on top of the other, were populating these movements. The first um, female presidential candidate in this country was a woman named Victoria Woodhull. She ran a, a protest campaign in the year 1872. She was a spirit medium. She was a spirit medium to uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt, the industrialist. Um, she, Woodhull became the first woman in 1871 to make an address to a joint committee of Congress. She gave a speech on voting rights. She called it the Woodhull Memorial. And afterwards, she told reporters that her speech, which actually stands up very well today, had been dictated to her in a dream by this Greek figure wearing a tunic who was her spirit guide, who had guided all of her public statements ever since she had been a little girl. She was completely forthright about this. She, at one time, Woodhull was one of the most prominent suffragists in America, and um, she, she became uh, the first female candidate for, for the presidency. Uh, it was a protest campaign. Um, and she, in her career, you find just one example of how the worlds of the supernatural and the worlds of the radical uh, completely coincided in American life uh, for a couple of generations in the 19th century. That later faded, um, but we haven't understood how these supernatural religious movements helped to just open up American life in all kinds of ways. Oh, fascinating, fascinating. You know, to, to kind of switch gears a little bit, I was thinking about Blavatsky, and my understanding of her was that she was self-educated. I'm wondering what you would think... Um, would be the effect of, I mean, because what's happening here is a lot of people are getting interested in the occult, and because of the Internet, they can do their own research and, and, and have access to a whole lot of information that would have been nearly impossible at, say, Blavatsky's time. Do you think, mm -hmm. do, what do you, how do you feel about this as ex accelerating um, new spiritual uh, circles like what Blavatsky did? Well, that's a wonderful question. Um, I, I feel that we live in an age of dissemination, that, that, that there is material out there today um, in a way that not only was inconceivable decades ago, but we have to understand that 
everything is a, a kind of trade-off, and every age has its own traits and characterization. We do not live today in an age of great teachers, at least not by my lights. I know. Um, the, the early 20th century was, and the late 19th century, was just rife with extraordinary figures and teachers, people who were vastly different, but their, their names live in posterity. Madame Blavatsky, Rudolf Steiner, Aleister Crowley, uh, G.I. Gurdjieff, P.D. Penske, and on and on. Damn, There's a damn. whole wide range of, of, of great, remarkable impresarios from the late 19th, early 20th centuries. That's not the case today. We also don't live in an age of great organizations and groups and societies. You know, every organization that deals in the occult and the esoteric today is probably shrinking. Um, we're not a generation of joiners, really, today. If you go to a convention of the Theosophical Society or the Edgar Casey Foundation, organizations of which I'm proud to belong, um, mostly the, the crowd is, is older, and it's not a large crowd. And um, I think people trouble themselves too much wringing their hands and wondering how can we get young people to come. You know, I don't know that young people are joiners today. So we don't have great teachers and we don't have large, thriving organizations. But what we do have is dissemination, you know, thanks to the Internet, among other things. This is an age of dissemination, and that has to be accepted. And I think people should take advantage of it, but they should take advantage of it intelligently. Um, part of the problem that exists, not only within the New Age, but many spiritual cultures, is that people people drink from waters that are just too shallow. I think people need to go further in their self-education. For example, one of the people I read about in the book was an American occultist named Paul Foster Case, mm. who wrote a very interesting book on tarot cards that um, came out uh, uh, near his death in 1947. And the thing I admire about Case is that he was a self-educated guy. Uh, he, he was a born in upstate New York, um, came from a very modest household, was a vaudeville performer, a stage magician, a piano player. He was an entertainer who hit the road very, very young in life, um, had nothing in the way of a formal education, but he struggled to gain a working knowledge of Hebrew, for example, because he wanted to study Kabbalah, and he felt that there was some connection between tarot cards and Kabbalah. That kind of example is the one that we should embrace. Do the heavy lifting is what I always encourage people. A guy like Paul Foster Case gained so much by going through what must have been the really, at times, agonizing difficulty of trying to learn an ancient language like Hebrew, but he felt it was a necessary doorway to, to seriously approach uh, Kabbalah. Um, whatever it is that you're interested in, whether it's tarot cards, whether it's astrology, there's a vast history behind this, and the astrologer, for example, should know something about astronomy. The astrologer should understand the precession of the equinoxes and know what he or she is talking about. Mm. Uh, an astrologer should be able to have a working conversation with an astronomer. Um, if you're interested in the positive thinking movement and want to talk about developments in quantum physics, those are things worth talking about, but you can't just imbibe New Age sources. You should read books on quantum physics that are written for the general public. You should be an educated lay reader who, who again, you know, could have a reasonable conversation with a student of quantum physics or, or with a scientist. You know, I, I think we, we, we do live in an age of dissemination, but it, it, it's not worth anything unless we try to uh, drink deeply and, and try to hold ourselves to a high standard. One of the thoughts 
that I had. So I read I read uh, Cult America twice, once back in 2010, and and once uh, this past week. Mm. But the interesting, and I had two vastly different experiences because back in mm. 2010 I was kind of in a group that was flirting with the idea of creating religion, mm-hmm. which is an interesting thing. But then the book is all about, and you mentioned Paul Foster Case, people presented with this notion of a calling. And so Paul Foster Case had this choice, you know, you can be an entertainer and go down this path, or you can yep. have the hard life of doing <laughs> the deep drinking and becoming, you know, this rewarding spiritual figure and then you also mentioned uh who was it holmes i believe yeah he didn't Chris want holmes. to start a religion but he yes. was he was bound to do, or compelled i suppose to do what he does yeah um so the the interesting thought i had this time is the notion of you know a prophet you know i think where i ended up later was to research muhammad and and jesus a little deeper to, mm-hmm. to you know and so it it's just fascinating to me why none of these people became the next next religious figure when in fact they very well could have i mean blavatsky seemed just about in in other countries to become something and then uh joseph smith definitely definitely became yeah. an american spiritual figure that and do you think it's just time that makes a prophet a prophet for the ages? That's an interesting question. You were mentioning Ernest Holmes, who's the founder of the Science of Mind movement, and a a fairly thriving metaphysical religion sprang up around Holmes' ideas. It continues today. Um, He professed to not really want to start a church or be the head of some sort of a vast organization. Um, I think the best guarantee of posterity is that someone's ideas uh, have a represent a kind of novel, modern sounding of universal truths, universal expressions. We need restatements of universal ideas. Uh, religious novelty is extremely important. It's a doorway that helps people find their way to great universal ideas. And you know, you were mentioning Paul Foster Case had a choice between becoming an entertainer or between becoming an occultist, and he, he, he chose the latter. And he spent a lot of years uh, struggling to pull together money to buy groceries. It was not an easy life. And I think almost every wisdom tradition, um, from the ancient Greek mythologies to the ethics of Christ to the sayings of Buddha, I doubt there's a historical religion that doesn't say at some point there are two paths in life, an easy one and a hard one. <laughs> and, and it's the hard one that leads to deliverance. Uh, the easy one often leads to ruin. And so when you, when you can find that kind of lesson, and there are many, many other lessons within the work or the example of an individual, you're usually looking at someone who is going to gain some kind of posterity. There must be in someone's work a resounding, a restatement of universal ethics and ideals. And if they can find that way of tapping into people's deepest hopes and deepest ideals, that, rather than any kind of organizational success, is usually the best indicator of whether their name is going to stick around. Okay, and then I guess that's a natural segue to Terrence McKenna. Um, One of the reasons why 
part of this conversation that's developing is mm-hmm. he created a meme that ended up becoming, you know, another end of the world scenario that we just yeah. kind of went through. And yep. what our show has been doing for weeks and weeks now is just trying to process this. I mean, it wasn't necessarily his intention to say, this is the day the world's going to end, but that's right. what it became. But then right. he's also this really interesting shamanic figure, almost a prophet. Yes. And, and so what are your thoughts about him and Esalen? And I know you speak about that a little bit in the last chapter of the book. Mm. Well, McKenna was a fascinating figure, and I've spent a lot of time uh, studying his time wave theory, which identified winter solstice of 2012 as some sort of a great date of transition. Uh, He wasn't an apocalyptic thinker, but he thought that 2012 uh, represented a kind of almost a a repeat loop of time in which humanity was going to undergo some great transition. Obviously, we we have limited perspective on that at this point. Um, It's very tough, though, to, to, to get into some of McKenna's work when you go at it all the way without any compromise. I've studied this time wave and I've really, really put some energy into it. And, and, and I have to say, it's very difficult to follow his logic. And it's possible that the whole thing is a kind of a great novelty. That, in fact, he was playing a game of the highest sort where he was breaking down logic rather than applying it. I've seen one critic say that McKenna's time wave actually doesn't work. The joke is on the reader. And <laughs> having spent a lot of time with it, I have a lot of respect for that critic because it's a brave man who has to say, you know, to be perfectly honest, I don't understand what's going on here. And I think that that's the point. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, 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 so I'm not sure, you know, what, what McKenna was really driving at with his time wave, but he represents a kind of, great example of the type of spiritual teachers or esoteric thinkers who made an impact, say, in the previous generation. They weren't part of big organizations. And and as I mentioned earlier, ours is not an age of big organizations. It's really the itinerant figure uh, who has become the great spiritual voice today. And that makes sense. That's a very American thing. You know, the early figures in the positive thinking movement, for example, who I think were the most alluring, the most appealing, the most attractive, were itinerant figures. They weren't part of any organization, and they didn't aim to be. Uh, There's a writer named Neville. He wrote under the single name Neville. His full name was Neville Goddard. He died in 1972. He was one of the most alluring and intellectually interesting of what might be called the positive thinking figures. And there are many, many others, some of whose names are remembered, some who aren't. But what they all had in common is they weren't part of any organization. And I think that's the model of the great American teacher. Uh, Religions become sort of institutionally deadening, and they settle into uh, a very predictable pattern of faction splits where you have one group that breaks up from the other group, and usually faction splits tend to continue rather than taper off, um, and authorities settle into a kind of uh, catechism, a dogmatism, and an approved body of works. But but the more dynamic model in our country in our time is, is a figure like, like McKenna, who's really just a great experimenter, and uh, um, that's that's where American spiritual genius usually comes from. You begin the book with an apocalypse, and uh, the Millerites 
1843, can you contrast our apocalypse with theirs a little bit, or...? I have a lot of sympathy for the Millerites. The Millerites were a cluster of people who formed around the Baptist minister and Freemason William Miller in upstate New York in the, as you said, the the, the 1840s. Um, I mention upstate New York a lot in, in the book and in the conversation. There was an area of upstate New York called the Burned Over District, which ran between Albany and Buffalo, which in the first half of the 20th century, I'm sorry, the first half of the 19th century, was the great spiritual laboratory of the world. Every great experiment um, from from the Millerites, which became the religion of Seventh-day Adventism, to spiritualism, uh, to Shakerism, to Mormonism, uh, to radical political movements like suffragism and utopianism, came out of the burned-over district. It was a remarkable place. The Millerites uh, formed around the, the, the person of William Miller. William Miller believed that... Uh, you could use the Bible as a kind of blueprint to pinpoint the dates of end times, the mm-hmm. dates of the apocalypse, the dates of the tribulation. So Miller sat down kind of in true Yankee fashion and said, well, we're going to get to the bottom of this. <laughs> he read through scripture and said, you know, he understood where the, the, the dates of, of the apocalypse could be found. And he pinpointed them to 1843, later to 1844. Obviously, as a physical event, this came and went and nothing happened. And his followers decided that actually what Miller had had prophesied were not events on earth, but celestial events, events in the cosmos and the heavens. And, you know, people roll their eyes sometimes at that chapter of history and think it sounds like a, a big excuse, you know, sort of a big sellout that, oh, well, you know, your prophecy failed, so now you're just going to change the prophecy. But there's another part of the Millerite story, and, and that is this. The Millerites represented a a really important strain of radical religion in America because although they had ideas that could be seen as fringe ideas, you know, pinpointing the date of the apocalypse and waiting for the end of the world, it all seemed so cult-like and so extremist. And yet, and yet, the movement was populated by people who were very able, capable, responsible people who didn't, in fact, abandon their economic lives, their family lives, their farms, their businesses. They had this uncanny ability, and you find this again and again in radical or alternative spiritual movements in America, to engage in all kinds of radical speculation, but to keep their hands and feet grounded to their earthly responsibilities. No one got hurt in William Miller's movement. People call it the great disappointment. I think it should be called the great experiment. It, it captured this unique quality of alternative spirituality in America where people could experiment, question, probe, but yet no one got hurt. No one fell into ruin. No one fell into chaos. There are exceptions to that, of course, and that would be a different conversation about cults. But the vast majority of alternative religious movements in this country's history don't fit the definition of cults. They're not movements where people's lives were controlled, ruined, taken advantage of. William Miller's movement resulted in a modern branch of Christianity called Seventh-day Adventism. One could accept its doctrines, reject its doctrines, but it was a success. There was a, there, there was a sense that William Miller, in the eyes of his followers, had identified something real, some events on a celestial or cosmic scale, not much different, frankly, from what some people today would say about the work of Terence McKenna, right. that you know McKenna wasn't really identifying an apocalypse, but he was identifying some kind of a, a great transition, a great right. turnaround in, in human time. It was very similar. 
and it went on to become a, a successful movement. So to me, the, the Millerites are, are, are a great example of, of American religious experiment. And there was no purple Kool-Aid. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, 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 and when those tragedies happen, um, we have to learn about them and we have to understand them and, and we have to look at them unblinkingly. Uh, but we also have to be careful in, in mainstream life not to use the word cult too easily because I find that people will throw that word around with, with far too much casualness. And what a cult is is very serious and very tragic. And uh, we, we just have to use it with discretion. Mm. Well, we're running out of time. We're at about 40 minutes. But one of the curiosities to me when we talk about the occult is this notion of the two worlds. And oftentimes, you know, the material is not as privileged as the spirit. And so it's interesting with the Millerites because it seemed like somehow they valued both equally, even though they valued the spirit. They wanted to transcend. So this is the interesting thought I'm having with kind of this cult of... Uh, AI consciousness springing forth that we're trying to upload, like transcend material into some sort of electronic universe at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'm just wondering your thoughts about that. Like two worlds and, you know, how, how we can reconcile this duality. Well, the Shakers, uh, and they were a, a radical spiritual movement, again, that grew out of the soil of upstate New York uh, in the, in the um, late 1700s early 1800s. Many people have heard of the Shakers because of their villages and their architecture, their furniture, their crafts. But the Shakers, among other things, were a movement that really valued and were steeped in the occult search. Uh, They were engaged in seances and spirit communications long before the dawn of the movement that we call spiritualism. They had an expression, hands to work, hearts to God. That was a keynote of Shakerism. Hands to work, hearts to God. They believed in the idea of a search that knew no boundaries, but they also believed in an accountability, a worldly, rock-solid dependability and accountability. God's work couldn't be manifested by the ineffectual. God's work couldn't be manifested by the lazy. So the Shakers have left behind this remarkable legacy of villages and crafts and songs. They were greatly capable people. And again, that's the leaf, that's the lesson to take from American spirituality. We have to let our experiments and our imaginations soar. But nothing can be made manifest by the ineffectual. We also have to be able to conduct ourselves and get things done on the planet Earth, and that means knowing where the bathroom is, knowing <laughs> what time to show up somewhere, um, you know, doing all the things that you need to do if you're going to run a New Age Center and, and actually have people be able to come and have a good experience. Um, my hero is the American philosopher William James, and, and, and one of James's central principles, and James was a great experimenter in mental healing, Christian science, positive thinking, um, he was one of the pioneers of psychical research. He was interested in uh, probing questions of life after death, telepathy, clairvoyance, ESP. He was a great radical experimenter, and he would always come back to the principle that the value of an idea could be measured. In fact, the only way a personal idea could be measured was in its effect on conduct, and that you couldn't call an idea 
um, uh, valid or delusional unless you had taken stock of its effect on conduct. And, and I think that's also a valuable thing for us to hang on to today. Um, it's very difficult to evaluate these things in abstract. They have to be evaluated in how they play out in the life of the individual. Okay, so we went a little bit over. I'm, I'm hearing a glitch in the matrix, but we're out of time. But that's Thank fine. Thank you so that's much fine. for coming on, Mitch. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Good day, sir. Thanks. Next week, we'll uh, have another great 42 minutes for you. Uh, take care, everyone. Bye-bye.